Most Americans say the U.S. healthcare system is broken. The head of one of the largest health systems in the United States says it can be fixed. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell. I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Clasco, president of Thomas Jefferson University and CEO of Jefferson Health. I'm here with him in his office to discuss his new book, We Can Fix Healthcare, The Future Is Now. Steve, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So every American president dating back to Truman has felt that they could fix healthcare. So what are your qualifications to write a book to say, I can fix healthcare, we can fix health? So I suffer from the disease of logic and actually being on the ground having done it. So just brief biography, I started out in private practice. I ended up building up an academic career. I've done two health startup companies. I'm on the board of a medical device, New York Stock Exchange company, and I've been dean of two medical schools and now a CEO of a large health system. So when I listen to everybody blame one of those components, I know it's my fault because I've done all of those things. If you talk to a lot of Americans, they're gonna tell you, we have the greatest healthcare system in the world, we don't need to fix it, we need to embrace it. So we had the greatest healthcare system in the world for 15% of the population. And you know, people ask me about the Affordable Care Act and they mm -hmm. said, you know, what do you think? And the non-political answer is that the Affordable Care Act gave everybody access to a broken, fragmented, inequitable, expensive, and occasionally unsafe healthcare delivery system, and then hoped that the healthcare delivery system would self-correct, put subsidies until that happened, and not miraculously, we didn't self-correct. We incrementally self-corrected, but we didn't come close to self-correcting. So the simple answer is, yeah, for people that can afford whatever they need, this is a great healthcare system. Secondly, as long as we're comfortable with losing business to other countries, because healthcare will keep going up 10%, because it's not your money paying for healthcare, it's other people's money, mm -hmm. then that's fine. That's the model we had. You know, it's pretty simple. Your model delivers what the model's supposed to deliver. So our model delivered great care for people who could afford great insurance, and they never had to think about anything, and we could pay dermatologists 15 times what we pay primary care docs, and all is good as long as we're willing to be non-competitive in the global marketplace and recognize that we're going to serve about somewhere between 25 and 50% of our population. So your book uses a futuristic vehicle to kind of go into the future, bringing a lot of stakeholders together. If we are going to fix healthcare, who are the major stakeholders you think need to come to that table to remedy things? Yeah, so it's everybody. But, you know, what the book supposes is that President Obama gives it one last shot and brings everybody into the room. So we interviewed 150 people, CEOs of pharma, lawyers, doctors, nurses, academicians, private practitioners, full-time practitioners, congressmen, senators, literally everybody involved in the healthcare ecosystem. And we got them together, and they did what we do best. We blamed everybody that wasn't us. Sure. Then there was a science fiction event, a blackout and a vapor, and we all woke up, and all we could do is look in the mirror. And then we said, oh, wow, I'm the CEO of a 12-hospital system. This is what I could change. And it's actually what we did. We promised to keep everything anonymous, which we did, but we would ask the CEO of a multi-billion dollar pharma company, look, if you weren't the CEO of a multi-billion dollar pharma company, knowing what you know, what could you change? And we did that with everybody. And it was really, really, really revealing. And, and the funny part of the book is that out of that came the 12 disruptors for the demise of the old health care that were so compelling that both the Democrats and Republicans used it as their health care platform, common health care platform. And I thought was really amazing in the book is how much the Democratic and Republican platforms for health care 
were pretty much the same. And what's really cool about that is I've met with Chris Jennings, who was Hillary Clinton's health care advisor, and I've met with one of the top Republican health care advisors, and 10 of those 12 disruptors, they agreed could be part of a platform. And what was sort of funny about the book was that we recognized that the way they pay for it would be different. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you remember, it would be something like the government shall mandate that everybody is technically competent. And, you know, that was the Democratic one where the Republican one was the government will allow the free market. to. But it ended up being the same thing. So you write about the triple aim. Could you kind of expand upon that for our listeners? Well, I think we get caught up in the triple aim as a metric for like our chief nursing officer. So I go back to a book that was written in 1965, John, that could have been written today by a guy named Bill Kissick, who was one of my mentors at Wharton. Mm-hmm. It was called Medicine's Dilemmas, Infinite Needs, Finite Resources. And in that book, he talked about an iron triangle of access, quality, and cost. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you remember your geometry, if you increase one angle, you've got to decrease another, right? So if you ever want to increase access, you have to increase cost or decrease quality. If you want to increase quality, you're going to increase cost or decrease access. He said in 1965, unless you fundamentally disrupt the system, and it'll be painful. He said in 1965, if anybody ever tells you they're going to increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost without it being really painful, they're lying. So what happened back in 2010, and I'm going with the fact that it wasn't malicious, you mentioned 15 presidents tried to give everybody access. Okay. So think about what happened here. Our Congress and President Obama passed a law. Mm -hmm. And they said we're going to increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, and don't worry, it's not going to hurt. But not only that, once they passed the law, they figured they were done. Right. Remember all the criticism that President George W. Bush took when he bombed Iraq for a day and said, mission accomplished, Iraq's done? We did the Iraq with health care. Because if you think about it, if it was that easy of just passing a bill, there have been other Democratic Congresses before, right, sure. under Bill Clinton and others, they would have done it. But every other Congress and president recognized, boy, after we do this, it's going to be a mess to really make it happen. And that's what we didn't do. So at the end of the day, if we're going to provide access for everybody and increase quality and decrease cost and hit that triple aim, we're going to have to make some really tough decisions. I'll give you a few of them. My Wharton thesis was on global health care and how it follows the money. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about other nations having full access, that's true. Mm-hmm. But we're the only nation where there's a 15 to 1 difference between the highest paid specialist and the primary care providers. We're the only nation where there's no end of life discussions. Oh, your 93-year-old great uncle Stan, mm-hmm. I know he's had three strokes and he hasn't been able to you know, be oriented for 30 years. But you know what? He's got renal failure and we can give him dialysis. And don't worry, you won't pay for it and the hospital will make a lot of money. That doesn't happen anyplace. And the most amazing thing that happened to me, if you remember when Don Berwick was being mm-hmm. uh, sure. viewed for CMS... He made this statement that, you know, I think we could learn something from the United Kingdom. And it was like, if you remember our generation, that movie where the head went around 360 yes. degrees and she vomited pea soup. Sure. It was like he had just done that. Now think about the hubris of that. So let's see. United Kingdom decided to give everybody access many years ago mm-hmm. and said, gosh, we're going to have to make some compromises for that. Now, I'm not saying they did it all right, but they made compromises because they recognized that triangle. Right. We said we won't even talk about that. Now, do you think everybody in the United Kingdom is stupid? Do you think they said, we don't have any smart healthcare people, so we're going to increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, but we're going to make it really hard for people to get elective cases right. and have end-of-life things because we're really stupid? No, they recognize the reality. We had the hubris to say, oh, well, that's the United Kingdom. But in America, we're going to give everybody everything and still do it for everybody. 
Although the VA system is a model much like the British system, correct? Part of the reason National Health Service where it doesn't work, and I would argue some of the VA stuff that doesn't work, because there's a lot of things about the VA that sure. does work, is you know there is a difference, not a Democrat or Republican thing, between government employees and the standards that they have to live to and people that work at Jefferson. Correct. I mean, because at the end of the day, people that work here, look, every place has access and quality issues, mm -hmm. but they know that they're held to a bar. And, you know, other than my faculty that's a little bit tenured, mm -hmm. these guys know that they have to do that or they won't have a job at Jefferson. So for access, so you have some kind of revolutionary things thinking about how access for the future and millennials yeah. will look at access yeah. versus what we've looked at forever. You want yeah. to expound upon so that? I'm going to give you a real live example. My daughter is 28 years old. She's a public health professional at Moffitt Cancer Center in mm -hmm. Tampa. She has what every individual in this country will have as far as insurance, $250 a month and a $3,000 deductible. So she makes $60,000 a year. $3,000 to a 28-year-old post-tax that makes $60,000 a year, well, big deal. Well. So she calls me up one day and says, Dad, what do you think of, and it was a small community hospital outside of Tampa. She's right on the University Hospital campus. I said, well, why are you asking me? Well, don't worry, I need a small procedure. And it's $200 of my money if I get it done at X hospital and $800 if I get it done at the hospital you used to run. Oh, before you tell me how great the university hospital is, that's $600. That's a weekend in Miami, dude. I said, well, I know that, dude. <laughs> oh, one more thing. I went on healthgrades.com, same grade. Oh, one more thing, Dad. I went on leapfrog.com, they have the same amount of errors. Oh, one more thing. I went on patientslikeme.com. Do you know the waiting rooms are cleaner and the staff is friendlier than the hospital you're at? Now, what were you going to tell me, Dad? That's the future. So millennials have much more technology over loyalty. One of my research interests has been on what makes docs and patients different than other people. Mm -hmm. and, and what we're finding with millennials is it's all about technology over loyalty. When you or I get told by our family doctor we ought to see a cardiologist, we say, okay, who do you want me to see? Right. I want you to see you know, Dr. Russell. Mm -hmm. When a millennial gets said, I want you to see an obstetrician, I'm an obstetrician or a cardiologist, mm -hmm. I say, well, that's nice. That's who you want me to see. That's probably who you play golf with or who's in your system. Right. Why don't you give me four names and I'll look them up. So I'm actually starting a company that's a match.com for obstetricians. Right. So this is how that works. I met my wife on match.com. <laughs> so, you know, you, you give a profile. A lot of it was actually true. Right. And she gives a profile and you match. So what's happening now, if you think about Obstetrics, the reason it's such a good model for this, almost everybody's 20 to 30. Right. They're used to doing everything like this, right? right? So now what happens is they put a profile. I'm pregnant. These are the nine things I want in my obstetrician, just like you did right. with Match.com. Right. I want somebody who can see me on Fridays because that's the best day for me to get out of work. We'll take my insurance with no deductible, has nurse midwives, has at least three women in their, you know, believes in this. Well, let me bring my doula, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Obstetricians then go compete for that patient you know, online and say, sure. well, I have five of your 10, right. you know, I'm great. And they pick it. It's a little bit like progressive insurance. Now, it's great. I have some obstetricians my age saying, well, I'll be darned if I will ever go and do that. Great. Don't do it. If I was a 40-year-old private practitioner today, I'd say, great, I hope you don't do it because I'm going to do it. Yeah. So to think it's not going to go that way, it's like travel agents saying, so, you know, who's going to ever go online to get their travel? They're not going to get me handing them the ticket. Right. TripAdvisor, Rotten Tomatoes, so many things in our life, open table. So I think even for older physicians, I think the computer is a big part of what we do all the time. Right. So access, what are some of the other, just practical, I'm, I'm a primary yeah. care doctor, yeah. how might my practice look different serving my patients in the future? Yeah. Are there different things how I'm going to deliver my care? Yeah, so I think what you and I and everybody have to recognize is the best place for the patient to get care is home. Mm -hmm. 
We talk about our strategy at Jefferson being a blockbuster to Netflix strategy. Mm -hmm. I, I met Reed Hastings, and you know he talks about his book about he started Netflix because he got tired of paying late fees. But he <laughs> recognized it was never about the store, which Blockbuster never realized. It was about the entertainment. Mm -hmm. When you get entertainment in the mailbox, that's better, right? Too lazy to go to your mailbox? Put it on your TV. Pretty soon we'll be too lazy to go on our TV. We'll have a little Netflix chip in our brain. <laughs> Same thing I think needs to happen to you. Your product is not your office. Your product is the care and caring you give. So to me, I think what will change, it'll start with the home. That literally, they'll have a Dr. Russell app on their Comcast or Verizon TV. Something's going on. That'll be their first access to you. And then you will decide. You might put this out to like Jeff Connect or, mm -hmm. or some other telehealth service. But you will decide, can I try to handle you now? Can I send you to an urgent care center? If it's during the day mm -hmm. of your office hours, can I send you to the office? Mm -hmm. Can I see you tomorrow? You'll start that way in most situations. Or do I need to send you to a hospital's emergency? Well, can we have a telehealth? Yeah. Can and, we have a telehealth yeah. visit? And by the way, you and the patient will get a bonus from the insurer because it's going to decrease ER visits. We've decreased our ER visits in our expensive ER by 30% through Jeff Connect. Now, if we look at middle America, is, is telehealth and all this thing, is that just something that's going to be privy to academic centers in the Northeast, or do you see this as something that's going to be on Main Street very no, soon? No, listen, we're looking at launching Jeff Connect in 19 states. And the only reason it's not more is in, in, in the bizarro land of healthcare, I can do Jeff Connect in North Carolina, but not New Jersey, because the guild of the New Jersey Medical Association doesn't necessarily want, want folks Across from Pennsylvania to come over. So the way that I think it'll be is it'll be very personalized. Mm -hmm. You'll have Dr. Russell Connect. It might be powered by Jeff Connect, mm -hmm. but you'll have Dr. Russell Connect. The beautiful thing about Internet-based things, it can happen anyplace. We'll have access to your schedule. The, one of the things that's different about Jeff Connect is every doc on Jeff Connect 24-7 is an ER doc. Mm -hmm. And the reason we picked that rather than primary care docs is because you're a great primary care doc. Mm -hmm. They don't need another primary care doc. Mm -hmm. What they need is somebody that can decide, just like you would in the ER, you know, is that somebody I can see Dr. Russell tomorrow morning? Is that somebody who needs to go to an urgent care center? Is that somebody that I can just take care of now? Or is that somebody that needs to go to a hospital ER? So you would have Dr. Russell connect. You know, during the day it might be one of your mm -hmm. nurses. At night it might be somebody mm -hmm. from Jeff Connect. What mm -hmm. we think is cool about Jeff Connect rather than some of the big multinational ones is it's not somebody from India, you know, mm -hmm. or not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. But, you know, in our situation, it would be all Jefferson doctors when you're not on. When it's you, it's your doctors and nurses. So if we have to look at the physician of the future, you run a medical school, and you as well as me kind of worry about the younger people in medicine don't seem happy. There are you know, suicide rates. I think we are now in the profession that has the highest suicide rate. Fourteen percent of young doctors have had suicidal yeah. ideations. So what does that doctor of the future who's going to be happy yeah. working in healthcare? Yeah. how do we have to change as medical schools? How do we have to change as residency programs? What does the doctor of the future look like compared to the doctor of the past? Yeah. So the first thing is we're choosing the wrong kids. We have 12,000 applicants for 290 slots at, at Jefferson, so we can get it where we want. So think about this for a minute. We still select doctors based on science GPA, MedCats, and organic chemistry grades. And somehow we're just amazed that doctors aren't more empathetic, communicative, and creative, right? As my kids right. would say, duh. So, you know, I don't know about you, but the gateway for me and almost every medical student was organic chemistry. Sure. Now, think back. Now, just think about how stupid this is. Remember I said I have the disease of being logical? Mm -hmm. I've been a dean of three places that have existed in this system. So 
our organic chemistry final, if you remember, was the Krebs cycle, the citric yeah. acid cycle, with all those different enzymes and the C's and the O's. I use that every day. The C's and the O's. <laughs> no, not only that. And your final was, without any of the names, filling them in. That's exactly who you want for your psychiatrist or your family doctor, right? Right. And by the way, if you got to see, you wouldn't be sitting, well, you might be sitting here today, but you'd be doing the video <laughs> part of it because you wouldn't be a doctor. Right. So think about this for a second. I'm on the IBM Watson Health Advisory Board. Mm -hmm. Jefferson's the first place that's partnering as a hospital with IBM Watson Health. Mm -hmm. IBM Watson Health or Google Brain is going to replace 80% of what we do. And in fact, one time I said that and the doctor got real upset. Mm -hmm. I said, look, any doctor that thinks they can get replaced by a computer should be. So here's why that's important. Once that person, that he, she, or it can memorize things much better than I, then my being able to memorize the Krebs cycle becomes about the least important thing. Right. And choosing students based on self-awareness, empathy, emotional intelligence, being able to observe versus see, communication skills becomes much more important, of which we do none of that in medical school. I started the first medical school in the country, 56 students a year, where we chose them based on self-awareness and empathy partner with Southwest Airlines and the company that does interviewing for Google. So they're all going to have to have IQ, yeah, yeah. right? But how are you going to be able to find out which young physicians yeah. have EQ? So there's really some great models now in business. Telios does it for Google. My son got a job at Google, mm -hmm. and they didn't want to see his transcripts. It was all behavioral clinical interviews. He ended up not taking it and becoming an actor, but that's a different mm -hmm. video. Here, I'll give you one example sure. of what we did with these students. We brought them to an art museum, and there's this one picture. It's in my book. You, right. There's a whole chapter on this guy in a black turtleneck, a woman in a white dress, and a snake. What do you see? I see a guy in a black turtleneck, a woman in a white dress, and a snake. No, but what do you see? A guy in a black turtleneck, a woman in a white dress, and a snake. No, what's that picture telling you? What's it emoting to you? It's emoting to me there's a woman in a white dress, a guy in a black turtleneck, and a snake. Oh, and there's one other thing over there. You have other applicants coming right away. We'll tell you what that picture is. Oh, the, the story the behind snake the snake represents the relationship between man and woman. Okay, so you might say, Steve, why is that important? It's important because, you know, I've delivered about 1,800 babies in my career. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty easy delivering a seven-and-a-half-pound baby to a normal 24-year-old. Mm -hmm. It's easy for me to say I'm on the other right. end, but it's medically easy. It's incredibly difficult delivering an unscheduled Down syndrome baby. And 100% of the time, the first question will be, doctor, what does that mean? And good obstetricians, and by the way, IBM Watson there, mm -hmm. will talk about the 21st chromosome or talk about the pulmonary mm -hmm. fibrosis they will get. But what the patient really means, what does this mean to my image of a perfect baby? And I've watched great obstetricians say, this is a beautiful baby, and before you leave the hospital, I'm going to get you together with other beautiful babies like this and their families. That 30 seconds is the difference between how that mom, in some cases that dad, imprints with that baby. Here's the scoop. No matter what chromosome thing I think that is, that thing over there is going to be better. Machine cognition is, mm -hmm. if you want to invest in something, invest in machine cognition. Because what that's going to do is take a picture of that baby, look through 26,000 databases, and say that's not trisomy 21, that's trisomy 20. I don't care what you got in your medcats. You're not going to be able to do that. However, that he, she, it will never, ever, ever be able to read between the lines of what does that mean, what to does this that mean. New young family. So now all of a sudden, who you pick is exactly the opposite of who we pick now. And do you think other medical schools are going to fall in line? Yeah. Do, you, do you think, does everyone see this as such a crisis of kind of wellness in young physicians? Well, no, not everyone. But I think there's places like Mount Sinai, there's Vanderbilt, there's other places that are joining us. We're actually in a consortium mm -hmm. with the AMA looking at this and, you know, partly funded by the Marcus Foundation and where we have about 30 schools. I mean, part of the problem is uh, that, that we have to get our national bodies, I mean, Again, I'm going to give you another thing that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. 
So in order to get into medical school, you have to get through all that organic chemistry, pass the MedCaps, all multiple choice tests. And remember, sure. we have 12,000 applicants for 290 sure. slots. So then, okay, you pretty much can do a multiple choice test, right? Then you get into your medical school, oh, no, don't relax yet, because your multiple choice test will determine whether you get the best residency. Then we're somehow amazed that doctors don't work as high-powered teams. When I was at Wharton, the most important decision you'll make your entire two years is your study group, because every grade you get will be a study group grade. Hmm. And so they threw the hundred of us in a room and said, get somebody for finance, somebody for accounting, somebody for management. It was lousy for me because people said, what are you? And I said, I'm a gynecologist and nobody wanted me to study group. It was, like, it was like gym class in the 60s getting picked last. But once I got picked, I learned to be interdependent. Same kind of thing is true for docs. So they get into medical school. Then in order to get to the next step, they have to take the next round of business. Sure. Then in order to go from your second to third year, from sitting in a classroom to seeing patients, you think that the next test would be, can you talk to somebody you know, without slobbering, or can you right. not be mean to somebody? What's the next test to get to the second, third year? It's a multiple choice test yeah. around biochemistry and, and microbiology. Yeah. And it's funny, is no one fails out as a third or fourth year medical student. Right, right. People can Which fail is when out you're as actually a, seeing patients. People fail out as first and second yeah. year medical students, yeah. but no one fails as a third year student. Yeah, yeah. So Institute of Medicine X number of years ago said, boy, medicine is unsafe. Right. So how in our fixing healthcare in your book do you talk about kind of going forward to making a safer industry? So first of all, we have to have, we have, to have some profiles and courage here. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, we blame malpractice attorneys. I did this one study of the bargaining iceberg where, you know, we're still out with malpractices. It's about greedy lawyers. It's about incompetent doctors. We don't talk about retraining. We don't talk. So the first thing, and probably the most important, I'll just give you one little anecdote. I'm a pilot. Mm -hmm. When I went down from Philadelphia to Tampa, and put my plane in pilot country. They said, wait, before you can leave your plane here, we have to know you're competent. I said, makes sense. Tested me on a simulator, tested me uh, up in the air. You're okay, Steve, fine. I went down from Philadelphia to Tampa and wanted to practice, and I hadn't practiced for about a year and a half at Drexel because malpractice insurance was so high, sure. and in Florida I had sovereign immunity. But I'm only gonna practice one day a week. One question, I mean, they checked the National Practitioner Data yeah. Bank and all that. One question, are you recertified by the American Board of OBGYN? Yes, I am. Welcome you know, aboard. You know how I get recertified. I fill out a multiple choice test every year. So the level of comfort that the first patient, I stuck a laparoscope in her abdomen and did three-dimensional surgery, two-dimensional plane. She knew within the last year I had picked up a number two lead pencil and not gone too far outside the line. I mean, the other conclusion is you're, you're a heck of a lot safer flying with me in Tampa than being operated with me in Tampa. That's ridiculous. And the fact is that we now have ways of testing competence. So the first thing that should happen is every seven years, Every surgeon or anybody that requires technical Any disciplines, there should be three simulation centers picked around the country that have started to create these assessment of technical and mm -hmm. competence. And they should have to prove their competence, just like a pilot has to do every two years or every year. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, when there's a new technology, like robot, I mean, robotics is a great example of what's wrong with healthcare in this country, right? When I was in Tampa, you could go down 275 and every billboard was, Joe's Hospital now has a robot. They never talk about the human on the other side of the right. robot. Some of these doctors do three robotic cases a year. And by the way, the way you get credentialed is one day with Intuitive. Why? Because that's good for Intuitive. I built this large simulation center down in Tampa. We did this competence thing where you had to pass X, Y, and Z to get our competence thing. It might take you six days. It might take me eight days. But you had to actually show you could do this stuff. Nobody was happy about that. I mean, the specialty side wasn't happy about it. The companies weren't happy sure. about it. But those are the kind of things we need. So that's the first thing. 
The second thing is we have to get serious about incentives and bundle payments. We've gone from perverse incentives to sort of okay incentives, but we, again, we've incrementalized. So when you and I were, were residents, if one of our attendings had a 20% wound infection rate and the other one had a 0% wound infection rate, the guy with 20% wound infection rate made more money because every time he brought the patient back, he got the bill. And not only that, the hospital CFOs, who aren't the most creative people on the planet, would go and look at this daily census and say, wow, that doc's much busier than that doc. We ought to take him out to dinner. Sure. Not noticing that the names look suspiciously like the names that were there yesterday. So we're now getting to the point that that's not rewarded anymore. So let's congratulate ourselves for 20 years mm -hmm. to get to that. But till you get to a true bundle payment model, where that doc with a 20% wound infection rate means that the orthopedist, every time that happens, because the readmission now goes to that $20,000 that everybody got, means he's getting paid nothing. Look, either you get your act together or you're not in our group. And by the way, it's not just the orthopedic group. It's the anesthesiologist saying it, because in the bundle, they're not getting paid for putting the patients to sleep. Oh, and the hospital saying it, because they're not getting paid for the hospitalization. Until we go there and stop talking about it and stop doing these stupid, you know, in 2017, 50% in macro will be alternative payment model. Oh, we didn't really mean 2017, we, mean 20, we meant 2018. Mm -hmm. By the way, you know why people aren't serious? The average person in my position of a CEO of a $5 billion entity is 67 years old. If there was a tsunami and they really believed something was gonna change, they'd have to do something. But this is what they believe, and they've been right so far. Look, it'll happen. I'm, I'm retiring at age 69. I don't believe this 2017, 2018 stuff. Or, it'll just like meaning feels to get delayed, delayed, delayed. By the time it gets delayed, the poor guy that has to take over after me will have to deal with that. My other alternative is I could really work 20 hours a day and change everything I've done and really upset a lot of doctors. I think I'll go with the former and take the chance. So some of this is just what's going to happen. And what can we learn from other industries that tolerate zero defects? The nuclear industry, air, airline yeah. industry. Well, the one that I like, everybody has seminal moments in their mm -hmm. professional career. I got a chance to be the head of the steering committee for iTunes U Health and work with Apple mm -hmm. in 2000. And again, it's hard to remember Apple in 2000, but the stock was 15, about 87 splits ago. And they were going to get bought out by Sun Microsystems for 13. It was dead. And the only reason that the shareholders didn't accept that, they wanted to see what Steve was going to come up with. And they said, is it going to be a competitor to Dell? Because remember, laptops were the big thing, and Dell sure. ran that. Competitor to Microsoft, because the operating system. And that was the whole thing. He came out with that thing holding 200 MP3s. Mm -hmm. By the way, it wasn't even clear MP3s were going to make it. The other MP3 makers had gone bankrupt, right. and Sony Minidisc was the main thing. So it comes out with a thing holding 200 MP3s. The stock goes down 15% that day. The Wall Street Journal was, is Steve crazy or on drugs? I mean, he mm -hmm. wasn't crazy, but he was on drugs. But at the end of the day, he recognized we were moving from a computer industry to a digital industry and put his stake there. So that's really the answer. We recognize we're moving from a hospital industry to a consumer health industry. We've stopped all our new bed development and we've invested in telehealth. We've invested in wellness. We've invested in public health initiatives. If we're wrong and nothing changes, boy, I am the stupidest CEO of all time. But at the end of the day, there's nexus points where things happen in industries. And you have, the reason I like that science fiction history of the future approach, if I ask, if I ask 100 docs, if I mm -hmm. ask the people watching this and saying, what do you think is going to happen one year from now, two years from now, three years from now, you know, in the, with mm -hmm. Trump elected, et cetera, all of our sphincters would tighten and we talk about malpractice and we talk about Medicaid. When you, ask, when, when you create a scenario, it's now 2026, 
and healthcare is fun and it's entrepreneurial and doctors are not getting burned out, they're having mm -hmm. fun again and we're making people well. And you go, what happened in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019 to get us there? We get very creative. So that's really the concept behind the book. I, I constantly think about what, what should Jefferson be like in 2026. I got interviewed by the New York Times about a week ago. And they said, how will you know if you're successful? I said, I'll know if I'm successful if somebody came down from Mars 10 years from now and says, where's Jefferson? And you couldn't define that. They said, what do you mean? Jefferson on my TV? Or Jefferson that's providing telehealth for Dr. Russell's office? Mm -hmm. Or Jefferson in the 27 urgent care centers? Or Jefferson out in, uh, in, in India with a transplant center? Oh, you mean the place where really, really, really sick people go? That's a tenth of all. So if there were two or three things you could, you could have our audience kind of take away from your book and, and your life's work of doing this, what would be the two or three seminal facts you would want people to have? So I think the first thing I would say is think about everything you do in the rest of your consumer life that you can't do in healthcare. If I watched my kids a Friday after Thanksgiving. They were watching season four of Game of Thrones in their pajamas doing all the holiday shopping. Sure. Where you and I used to have to go and, and wait in the morning. Cyber Monday is but if, right, now but a holiday. If, but if they had a stomach ache, there's not too many places they could go and say, you know, put stomach ache and get it. So the first thing is to think that healthcare isn't going to be a consumer health entity is nuts. 85% of new insurance plans are high deductible. So in your office or wherever you are in the healthcare chain, think about travel, think about shopping. Think about even what labs have done right. and, and do it. So that's number one. I think on a broader scale, we have to stop selecting and educating the doctors of the past. I mean, you mentioned quality and safety earlier. I mean, it's just so ridiculous what our curriculum are. I mean, most of what we do the first two years could be online. Yeah. Biochemistry, microbiology, and you were kidding. And, and but, med but when, students, they don't go to class right. anymore. Well, well, they just spent four years majoring in chemistry or yeah. microbiology. And then they're going and doing that for the first two years. So we're doing a whole new curriculum with longitudinal cultural competence and longitudinal quality and safety. I went to a top 10 medical school and gave this talk. Mm -hmm. And I talked about how you have to have longitudinal quality and safety. And the dean honestly I said, oh, we have a whole day the third year in quality and safety. That's great. Whole day. It's great. It's the third leading cause of death in this country, yeah. the whole day. And then, and then the, the third thing is, and this is probably more of a political thing, and it really hit me during the Democratic National Convention. Jefferson was the official health system. I was proud of that. Got to meet Secretary Clinton. And one of the things she said when we were there, because she was talking about, you know, doubling down and adjusting the Affordable Care Act, she said, Philadelphia is such a great example of great health care. They've got Penn and Jefferson and Temple and Drexel and, mm -hmm. you know, all these great institutions. We need more places like Philadelphia. I said, yeah, you know, we need more sure. places like Philadelphia. Next day. It was in the New York Times that Philadelphia has the greatest discrepancy in life expectancy between zip codes. True story. 19147, where I live, the baby's born today, it lives till 2104. North Strawberry Mansion, baby lives today, does not make it to 2090. It's about a year less than Iraq and Syria. So while we're all patting ourselves on the back of what an amazing job we do in Philadelphia, we do a really lousy job of the business we're in, which is health. The third thing I would say is we have to not only recognize but fund and incentivize the fact that 80% of a community's health has nothing to do with what happens in the hospital. And until we do that, until CEOs are incentivized, I'm writing an article that basically says, it'll be a controversial article, if you want to see what your hospital or your health system is going to look like 10 years from now, forget what the board says, forget the mission, forget the vision, because that's always about community engagement and disparities and wellness. Look at the CEO's incentive.
because that's always about census, EBITDA, net operating income, et cetera. Thank you so much for being on the show. The book is We Can Fix Healthcare, The Future Is Now. Dr. Stephen Klaska, who's president of Jefferson University and CEO of Jefferson Health, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you.